Ken, I'm really excited about our guest today here on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. Hugh Kennedy joins us today. You know, Hugh and I met about eight years ago when I was managing a leadership development program called Public Allies. He was a participant in the program, and this program had a cohort of people, and it was majority people of color. If I'm completely honest, that was one of the most challenging years of my life when I was a program manager there. I was in a leadership position for a program focused on social justice, and at that time, I really had not done the personal identity work that we're going through now. And in my opinion, it was kind of a disaster on my end. I was just completely lost about how to navigate that space, being white, cisgender male, heterosexual, and to top it off in a position of power. I made a ton of mistakes and unfortunately harmed some folks in the process. But it really was the kick in the ass that I needed to take a hard look at who I am and to reflect back on the dynamics at play so I could learn to be better. You know, Hugh was different, though. He seemed to, quote unquote, get it. I know he'd probably disagree with me because he's a humble guy, but there was just something about the way that he was able to build relationships with his cohort members. You know, the more I got to know him, the more it made sense. Hugh grew up in a neighborhood that was primarily non-white, but he also talked a lot about his heritage and how connected he was to his ethnic roots. He seemed to have already been doing his identity work, and it showed. Let me tell you a little bit more about Hugh, and this is the bio he sent me, so I'm going to read it word for word because I love it. (laughs) Hugh is just a regular-ass dude who likes people and wants to eat all the mung pepper until his booty hurts. Since a young age, he has been culturally immersed in many different spaces involving different nationalities, race, culture, and social economics. He grew up in the melting pot of Rosemary Hills in Silver Spring, Maryland, where he was often the one white guy in the room. In fact, here's the demographic breakdown, 30% black, 33% white, most are Jewish, 20% Hispanic, 7% Asian, and 4% multiracial. I think my community was 95% white while I was growing up. He came to Minnesota during college and now does IT work for the DFL House Caucus and as a community organizer in Eastside St. Paul in hopes of leading a helping hand to the Hmong community as payment for all the pepper he keeps eating. (laughs) I wanted to bring Hugh on the show because he brings a really unique perspective, but he is also trying to figure out his role as a white man in this world, just like the rest of us. Yeah, I really loved this conversation with Hugh. I'm really happy that you asked him to be a guest. And like you said, he's just really like us figuring out his role as a white man in this world. And, you know, he has a really unique, different lived experience that you mentioned. You know, the value of having all these different lived experiences and valuing different lived experiences and how you can learn from people with different lived experiences. I mean, I think that that was all really on display with our conversation with Hugh. You know, you look at, as you can, to go on our YouTube channel if you want to look at it. But you could, you know, if you looked at it, you're like, okay, three white guys sitting and talking about being three white guys. And you can probably have all the stereotypes that would pop up about three white guys talking about their race and talking about being white guys, right? But I think what was cool about it is that our lived experiences are very different and how that impacts worldviews, even amongst people who have the same identities on the surface, right? And so 
I think that that was really helpful. You and I have talked a lot. Of, you know, you and I have more similarities and differences on probably most things, I would say. We have that status on our identity process where it's like you start to like label white men or self-righteousness and all this stuff. And I've told our listeners how I've fallen susceptible to that before, where I was just like, you know, I've gotten better, but I'd be like, I would label white men and be like, oh, this white guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. Or this white guy doesn't know identity work. It's so easy to do, like to, to label people immediately just based on stereotypes or preconceived notions. And something that I really loved about this conversation was like, Hugh has a very different lived experience from us. He's done really interesting identity work. He sees the world and culture and race and spaces where he is often the only white person, very different. And it was just nice to hear about that and talk with him about it. So I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is more than I think just a interview or conversation, whatever you want to call it. I think what was really happening is that we're really working to change the culture among white folks, right? That the culture right now, what's normal is that we don't talk about race or when we do, we get, you know, some of that white fragility and it's uncomfortable. We want to run away from it. But the more conversations we have like Hugh and that we did with Jared, we're normalizing that having conversations about race and unpacking whiteness is important. And it is just what we do as white people. So I think yeah. that's what I really loved about this conversation. And Hugh had tons of great experiences and he also had some really great practical advice. So I, I think you're all, you're going to get a lot out of this, folks. Excited for you to hear the conversation. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Hugh Kennedy. We are pleased to be joined by Hugh Kennedy. Hugh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we dig in too far, you have to tell us what all the rage is about these Hmong peppers. That was all in your bio several times. So what are they like and where do I get my hands on them? Oh, you're going to have to ask some OGs. You're going to have to ask some folks uh, <laughs> who really know what's good. Uh, but no, Hmong pepper is my favorite stuff. Uh, it's ch Thai chili peppers chopped up then mm. uh, some cilantro, fish oil. You can add in other things like, you know, every household has a little different variation on it or their take. But I like it simple with those core ingredients. I think there might be lemongrass, but someone might call me out um, that tells, just to correct the record. But it's just delicious. It's like perfectly, it's just super sweet and you can put it on anything. It's especially good on pork belly. I mean, my favorite thing is just, just put it on top of like rice and eat it. But everybody makes fun of me because they they say like that's what our children eat. Like, you know, like we, we, we let kids eat uh, pepper with rice. But it's my favorite thing to do. Just rice, pork belly, um, pepper, and I'm good. I'm sold. I need to yeah. try some of that immediately. It will wreak havoc on your body. So you got to be careful. But, I was going to say, for those of us who think ketchup is spicy, should we uh, tread lightly with this stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not far from me. Like mild salsa to me does not exist. There is spice <laughs> in mild salsa. Yeah. Love it. So, Hugh, Ken and I both had very similar upbringings. We've talked a little bit about that. You know, we both grew up in mostly white suburbs and went to mostly white schools, both high school and college. And actually, you and I both went to the same college. I think diff had different experiences. I'm much older than you. But for sure, our upbringings are very similar in, in growing up in very you know, homogenous neighborhoods. 
you know, and it wasn't really until our 20s and 30s that we began to work with and live with black, indigenous and people of color. And most white men we know, and I'm, I'm assuming quite a few of our listeners have had a similar experience. Although going through your formative years in a racially homogenous culture isn't really a bad thing, quote unquote, it does mean that we have some work to do to learn about how these experiences shape the way we see or don't see race and build genuine relationships with those who don't look like us. So a big reason we wanted you to come on the show is that you had a very different experience. You grew up in a majority non-white neighborhood. In fact, you said that you were acutely aware of your whiteness since age six. Could you start by talking about your upbringing and how it shaped your identity? Yeah, absolutely. I'm the biggest fan of where I grew up. I'm in Silver Spring, Maryland, and specifically the Rosemary uh, Hills neighborhood. You know, 16th Street and East West Highway right there, one block away from the District of Columbia. Uh, thing about growing up on the East Coast is you really live next to city, next to city, next to city. And I think a lot of folks had experiences like mine where it's just very diverse. And also it's a beautiful thing about the D.C. areas that, especially in Maryland or in the District of Columbia, is that you can just walk down the street and like you'll probably hear seven different languages by the time you get from where you started to the metro or to the Starbucks or wherever you were trying to get to. It's a really a gift in that sense. My area particularly was interesting um, because it was very much a mix of working class and middle class folks. And so my area had a lot of Jewish folks who lived in a very, uh, like sort of suburby kind of looking area. And then right next to us was a very black area that was an apartment complex area. And we were just all very much mixed in together. And so you have people from East Africa, West Africa, from Zambia, from Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador. You just had really everyone. It, it just felt like a real melting pot. I saw the other day, actually, that 37% of people who lived in that area are born outside the U.S. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how international it kind of feels. And I remember being acutely aware of my whiteness, especially there are two memories that come to mind. The first memory is I remember in kindergarten, I was, since I have a hearing disability, I, I was in a special ed program for hard of hearing kids. And my best friends in that class was a Liberian guy named Ibrahim. And then uh, my best friend was Sammy, who was from Nigeria. And then I had a few other friends. But I remember in kindergarten, we were learning about Martha Luther King. And my teacher, Mrs. Lang, uh, bless her heart, uh, was teaching us about Martha Luther King and the civil rights movement and was able to say, you know, somehow she was able to get it across to me as a kid in our garden, like black people didn't have the same rights as white people. And black people were abused and hurt, and they were bullied and, you know, terrible things were done to black people. And I remember at that moment being like, no, it's not true, you know, as a six, six-year-old. And looking at my friend Sam, Sammy, and just looking at his reaction, and he just gave me this look that still somehow kind of sticks in my mind where he it was not any kind of look other than just, yeah, just a blank look of, yes, yeah, of course, you know, like matter of factually, almost like, yeah, that did happen. 
And I remember I actually was so upset by it. My mom used to tell me that when I came home, I was so upset. It's like, how could anyone hate Sammy? And so I was aware of that injustice. But I remember the other thing that I learned of that moments were when I was at the bus stop and I would see you know, all my neighbors and I would just always notice that I just looked different than all of my neighbors. And, you know, I didn't wear a yarmulke. I didn't go to temple. I had lighter skin than everybody. My hair was different. There were just different things happening. And so I just always had this sense that I was different from other people. And I read somewhere that an interesting thing that often happens to kids when they're socialized in America when relating to like dominant culture versus non-dominant culture is that usually white people will understand the world as other people are different from them, whereas kids of color will understand that they are different from white people or everybody else, but they understand themselves as being the different one. And I guess because of the nature and the makeup of my neighborhood, I never really had that socialization where I thought of myself or thought of other people as different from me. And I think that is kind of key there. But I will also say that there was still a lot to work through. I still had many you know, things to learn and unlearn. And I think a lot of it has to do with the dinner conversations, right? Like, what, how do your family give you the tools to understand and unpack racism, privilege, and, you know, the power dynamics that are between people in America? And it was also kind of interesting. I mean, I'm a 31-year-old guy right now, yeah? So when I was a kid and when I was in high school or anything, allyship was not a buzzword yet. There was no, there, there really was no literature like we have today. There was no guidance on how to be like someone who wants to be an anti-racist. Like, I don't know if there, there must've been some idea about anti-racism at that time, but there wasn't really a lot on it. And it wasn't exposed, especially to white people. And I kind of figured it out through when my friends started introducing me into underground hip hop. Because underground hip hop was teaching me how to understand structural racism. And it really gave me the vocab and the words that I understood and how to unpack both my privilege and then also what structural racism is and what capitalism does and how it pits people together and exploits people. So I think that really helped me. I think one thing that was a skill and a gift that I was able to get on early was just being so observant and being able to empathize with my neighbors and then fit the rhythm of my friends. Something that also affected me at a young age is I had never I never had a pumpkin spice latte until after college. I never had mayo on any of my sandwich until after college. I also worked so hard to be a good dancer and become good at basketball. Because of, I'm still terrible at basketball, by the way, but the reason was because I was experiencing a lot of stereotype threats where it was, and this is now what I can understand, like, because I have that word, stereotype threat, but I didn't really understand it at the time. But for the uh, lattes, I understood real quick, you know, from, from just overhearing conversation with people of color, it's just like, oh yeah, white people love lattes. They just love pumpkin space lattes. And I was like, oh, okay, 
I won't have one of those because I don't want to do the thing that other white people do. I don't <laughs> want to be, I don't want to be, be falling into the box, you know? And then with Mayo, it was kind of funny as I remember the movie Undercover Brother came out and that's with uh, Eddie Griffin and Dave Chappelle is in it. By the way, Dave Chappelle is from Silver Spring. He grew up just a few blocks away from where I lived and we were very proud of him, but he claims New York and whatever. But that's a great movie. And that's like a spoof of James Bond a little bit where Undercover Brother is an agent that is on missions to uh, defeat the man who's the white man. And so in one of the scenes, he has to go to a country club. So, you know, one of the brothers, a conspiracy brother who is played by Dave Chappelle, gives him the tools like Q gives James Bond the tools to get into the country club. One of them being a watch that squirts hot sauce onto his mayo sandwiches so that he can still blend in at the country club. And all my friends were laughing and thought this was a hilarious joke. And then I realized in that moment, oh, they're laughing because white people eat mayo. So I decided I couldn't have mayo because that's what white people have. (laughs) It was just kind of an interesting thing where I was learning. I was trying to unlearn my whiteness, I guess, in a way. But there's some goods and bads to that, right? Um, I think that also that did lead me to think, oh, white people can't dance and that white people don't have rhythm. And that's ultimately negative and that's not good for self-esteem. If I was self-conscious of like, oh, I want to play pickup basketball, but I don't know why white people can't play basketball or I might be picked last, right? And I think that doing that whole self-conscious thing of like thinking of myself as white all the time, it can lead to being a self-hating white person. And that's where it's not, a, it, it becomes a negative identity. You become associating yep. whiteness with, you know, uncoordinated or not cool or something. And so it was just a lot of experiences where I had to unpack a lot of things like this. And it's, it's just very interesting, I suppose, to try to make sense of that now that I'm a 31-year-old guy, right? Yeah. Uh, Gosh, there are so many insightful, interesting things in that, in that story, Hugh, that I want to pull out. You know, one of the big ones that, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, as you said, you know, being a 31-year-old now and kind of looking back and unpacking this is... A lot of it is is the idea of proximity, right? And the importance of the idea of proximity and that story of you in the classroom learning about Martin Luther King Jr. Day and even just the fact of having a black friend who the look on his face made you pause and be like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, this must be real. And the face made you mad. It made you think, how could anybody dislike my friend for the color of his skin? Like that, I think that's a really powerful example of the importance of proximity, because if you know, like Paul said, like he and I being in classrooms of all white kids growing up, essentially, we'd look around the room, we'd all be like, oh, no, that's crazy, right? There's no like different lived experiences. And so I think that that's a really insightful example of the importance of proximity. And that's something that we've been talking about the importance of that. And it was something that in one of our email exchanges that you had with the idea of proximity, specifically to people of color and white people's history of using people of color, black, indigenous people of color as social props and trophies. So there's kind of this combination of those two ideas, the proximity, but then using them as social props or trophies. Can you say more about that, the, the idea of that difference? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really valuable to be in proximity with people who are different from yourself because you're going to learn so much and you're going to learn also just your commonalities too, right? You're not just learning about differences. You're learning about what what brings you together. There's just so much inspiration. And you also, I think it just creates genuine relationships in that kind of sense. But even when you're in proximity with people, I think it takes real intentional effort. I mean, there are plenty of people I went to high school with, and my high school was, if not half, more than half people of color. There were plenty of white people who didn't make that effort to reach out or make connections with people. And there's actually a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together that actually talked about specifically my high school. Um, Oh, wow. That was studying specifically uh, BCC High School. All right, you, you. I have to just jump in and interrupt you for a second because that's like one of my all-time favorite books. And Paul teases me about how much I talk about that book. And I literally wrote down like three things from that book that you've said that has made me think about that book. So yes, I just had to hop in and say, thank you for bringing that into this so we can talk (laughs) about Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum at any moment. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think one of my good friends or my neighbors that's in it, he's a Haitian guy named Lamo, uh, is actually one of the, the students that's mentioned in that book. And it's wow. a like, super small world. I didn't learn about that until college. It was just like, oh, this is wild. But yeah, I think having that proximity is great for learning about you know each other. But the true measure of diversity is not who's in the room. It's about the quality of the relationship between those people in the room, right? Like if you just have a panel of like, oh, we have a black per- a black woman, a black man, we have an Asian man, an Asian woman, a white man, and a white woman, and you just line them up and there's a, there's a panel, but they don't, don't have any chemistry with each other, they don't talk with each other, what's the point of that? What is there really diversity in that? Like, is that diversity really contributing to something? Because we need to have you, you need to have real connections with each other and real trust with you to build anything you know that's going to be noteworthy in terms of like the hit the co-opting of black culture i've seen this a lot and i particularly saw this when i was going to college where it was very jarring to me where i would see really preppy white kids blasting hip hop from their you know Cadillac or Escalade, right? Or their really nice car, whatever it might be. And just acting like they're real tough. It's using masculinity that's often expressed in hip hop. I think there's some level of intersectionality here, right? Where it's co-opting blackness or black masculinity. But what it's also was sending a message is, and I think I sort of witnessed this with my black friends too, is that they were getting the messaging that it's cool to be black as long as you fit that particular image of what blackness is, which is a lot of toxic masculinity in mainstream hip hop. And that's a very controversial subject and there's a lot to unpack there, but if you're using your proximity to black of black people or people of color in general to just elevate your status, yeah, there's a big problem there, right? This could also be in why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? 
that idea of determining what parts are cool, like you said, is really problematic, right? And if you're only like cherry picking that and, and kind of determining like it's the hip hop, it's sports, it's these parts that is cool or that we are co-opting. But other parts about different cultures or like you said, blackness or black maleness to say, oh, those are less than, right? That's a really unhealthy and unfair balance that continues to perpetuate a lot of these stereotypes and differences. Yeah. One thing that was kind of interesting is a lot of my black friends in uh, Silver Spring were actually African. I can just name like Ethiopian, Cameroonian, Nigerian, and Somali, and I can remember there being instances where they were trying very hard to be African-American or pass for African-American rather than being African because they they saw it as, you know, in, in high school, they saw it as it's more cool to be African-American. And the reason it was more cool is because the white kids really thought it was cool if you listen to hip hop, you know, because a lot of them would have very problematic ideas about people of color in that sense. So it's just very interesting. And and I say that because I think it kind of skews their development of their identity, right? Is that they thought, oh, I have to be this certain kind of way because of what is deemed cool and what is deemed cool or what is currency is often determined by white people like uh, record labels and executives are often the ones that are kind of controlling that yeah i think it's a really important point to talk about what are our intentions when we think about proximity and developing relationships with people of color i, I remember seeing i had to look it up just to make sure i'm right but 75 percent of white people don't have any non-white friends So three out of four white people have zero non-white friends. And I'd put myself in that category, depending on, I guess, how you define friend. But I definitely work with and are in community with some people who are non-white. But I think a really common question that I would venture to guess a lot of white people have, a lot of our listeners have, is, okay, I don't have any non-white friends. I live in an all-white neighborhood. My workplace is mostly white. How do I get started, right? And it's, it's important to be intentional before you get started because... I think about, well, yeah, you could get up and move to a majority non-white neighborhood, but there's consequences for that, right? We know about gentrification. We know about because of systemic racism within housing, there could be real consequences for the people in that neighborhood. And do they even want you to be in that neighborhood, right? It's a very much a privileged thing to say, I choose to go and move to this neighborhood. And even developing relationships with people of color, there could be consequences for that. So we need to be mindful about that. But at the same time, I think it is a very common question for lots of folks to say, how do I, I guess, in a sense, solve this problem of lack of proximity? So I guess, what would you say to someone who is in that boat about how they get started? You are going to make so many mistakes. You're going to fall, stumble, you're going to be humbled, you're going to cringe and have flashbacks of, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But you know what kind of matters more than anything is that you keep showing up. That's what people really respect. I remember there was at the Cofield, the the community center where I grew up, is that I would play pickup games of sports over there. And there was always this older, older black guy who would just sort of scorn at me. Like anytime he saw me, just like, oh, why are you here? Like almost like I was invading the space. And there was a lesson I learned. And this was like in middle school, I think. I'm not going to be everybody's friend. And that's okay. I'm I'm, I'm not going to make everybody's friend. 
and they don't know me, but I can kind of guess that this guy's been through quite a lot, right? Like he's an older gentleman. He's probably seen some shit, right? And so I have to accept that and it's not let it affect me, but I should just keep showing up. If I really want to win favor at, at all, I should just keep showing up. But I also shouldn't be attached to the outcome of I'm going to have a friend, right? I mean, being anti-racist, the goal is not to make us feel better as white people. It's not to make us become to become a better, the good white person. I think it's very dangerous to hold on to the goal of being one of the good white people. You don't want to be one of the good white people. In fact, I sometimes think that the good white people get in the way of real progress because the real goal of the anti-racism work is to alleviate or reduce and eliminate the suffering of people of color because of white supremacy. So if the goal is that, then I just need to keep showing, even though it is kind of like, eh, Mr. Johnson does not like me. Oh, well, you know, but that's just what it is, right? And I think another thing that's really important, especially if you're entering in spaces where you're the one white guy in a room, and that's kind of the theme of my life, is between two worlds and being the guy, the white guy in a room, is when you enter that room, and let's say in this hypothetical situation, it is just all people of color, and particularly one group of people of color, right? And you enter that room, the first thing you need to do is you need to come correct. And what I mean by that is there is a balancing act between being self-conscious and self-aware. If you come into the room self-conscious, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come in and you're going to dart your eyes around and sort of nervously look around and see, oh, what's going on? And people can read body language really easily. They, they can read body language probably louder and easier than words. And so when that happens, there's either two different things that are going to happen, either There's going to be someone who's going to take pity on you and try to make you feel comfortable for the next half hour. And it's going to make you feel more uncomfortable. And then it's just going to devolve into you feeling out of place. And you didn't develop any real relationship in that entire time. You didn't develop any connection because you were feeling self-conscious and you let it show. And then so other people were trying to make you feel less less uncomfortable, but that actually ended up making you feel more uncomfortable, you know, or if you enter that room self-aware, yeah, I'm the white guy in here, but okay, it's fine. I'm just going to be chill. I'm just going to enter the room. Being self-aware, I am in this space. I am going to make sure I don't take up too much space. Mm. You just enter that room. You're just cool as a cucumber. When people ask you, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing well. How are you doing? And then you, you know, try to be as genuine as you can in having a conversation with people. If it gets into an uncomfortable direction at the direction of the person, learn to get uncomfortable with it. You know, mm. it will develop resilience. And it also, you're going to create a real connection out of that. If you experience some, two, two of you experience that together and you're able to still keep talking, that means a real connection was made. I think it's just really important that you just keep showing up. You take a step back. Just don't give up. Don't just quit because it got hard. That's such an amazing point, Hugh. I'm so glad you brought that up. To me, it's so counterintuitive. To me, like I'm visualizing myself going to that room. And to me, what I'm hearing is say, going confidently in, in who I am and feeling confident in my identity. 
right? And not as identity as a good white person, right? But just as that self-aware, right? Self-aware of who I am, where I am, who I'm with, and what whiteness is. And of course, that requires doing all that work ahead of time. You can't do all that in the few seconds when you step in that room, right? It takes a lot of pre-work before you get there. But what I thought of, the, the book that I always reference is My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menicum, and he talks a lot about this two-way street of white people wanting to be soothed by people of color. So our bodies, our white bodies get tense, and that trauma, essentially, that trauma response happens. And then we, we seek out black bodies or bodies of culture to soothe us. And on the flip side, you have black bodies of, or bodies of culture They've been through racial trauma conditioned to want to soothe white people because when white people are pissed off, that means bad things are going to happen for bodies of culture. And so we need to be aware of all those dynamics happening. And that happens a lot through our bodies. And that's where a lot of that body work is important. A lot of that trauma healing is important. It's amazing how many dynamics are at play in such what seems to be, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but just sort of a simple interaction. There's so much happening, so much history and a lot going on there that we all need to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you bring that up because a lot of times white people want to, when they enter the room and it's kind of awkward for them, they might try to make light of the situation by sort of acting like a little bit of a clown and that's very patronizing. And then, you know, that's emotional labor. And, you know, you got to think to yourself, do you think this is the first time they've they've watched a white guy or, you know, white person just be really mediocre? No, they've seen this all. They, they've seen this tape plenty of times before. <laughs> um, it's like, I think white people have to learn not to go for the easy thing sometimes. Like it's, for example, the question, where are you from? It's an easy, innocent enough thing to do to say, oh, where are you from? I mean, you could say it to a white person too, right? But I think it's also just so important to be intentional about don't go for the easiest thing to ask. Like, for example, I remember when I moved to St. Paul after college, I had a roommate who was from uh, Detroit. So when I said, oh, yeah, you know, I moved here from D.C. And then she was like, yeah, I'm from Detroit. And I thought to myself, ooh, Detroit. I'd like to hear about Detroit. What is Detroit like? Because I've heard so many stories. A lot of them negative, but I've heard a lot of stories about Detroit. But there was a moment in me where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to ask about Detroit. You know why? Because she has probably had to talk about Detroit way more times than she has cared to talk about Detroit. So let's first just get to know each other. And then maybe I can ask about Detroit when it appropriately comes up. That really has my wheels turning that I want to pinpoint. This idea of proximity versus friendship, right? And I think that a lot of cases, it's like you you can hear white people say, or even, you know, Paul the stat, like, you know, three out of four white people don't have black friends or friends who are BIPOC. You know, I think that's an important difference because for one, when one is in your formative years and growing up in elementary school and into high school, you know, you build a lot of friendships and, you know, like Paul and myself, we were in very homogenous environments. So we naturally built a lot of friendships with people who look like us, a lot of white folks, whereas your experience is different. You have, were able to build you know, natural relationships with people of color 
And when people are now like, oh, you know, I'm really trying to be anti-racist. I'm really trying to be better. I want to have more proximity. I need to make friends with black people. I need to make friends with people of color, people who are different than me. You got to be careful with that, I think, right? Because for one, like kind of your point, friendships should be naturally created. Friendships should be something where you connect on something deep. You want to spend time with each other. I think that when one is doing identity work, specifically as a white person working to be anti-racist, working to kind of broaden one's cultural fluency, broaden one's worldview, you'll end up going into rooms that you're speaking of and you might be the only white person. I have been the only white person in rooms before as well. And you'll find that your network and the people that you surround yourself with tend to be less homogenous just because of what you're working on and what your interests are and that it's a, it's unique and it's passionate. That's really, really helpful, right? It expands your worldview. That still doesn't mean any of them are going to be your friends. I think that, yes, a friendship could happen. Like take Paul and me, for example, right? Like I asked Paul to do this podcast with me. We had worked together a little bit. It's like, cool, we both believe in this and want to do it. We work together. And like over time, I'd, I'd like to think we've built a friendship. Like it's genuine. Maybe Paul would disagree. I don't know. But like, I think that is a genuine thing that should happen naturally. So I almost think that it, it, it's a, an important mindset where it's like, I need to go out and make a bunch of friends with you know, black people. It's like, no, like, I, I think that expanding your worldview will get you in those networks and maybe you'll make some friends. Maybe you're, maybe you won't, but you can build relationships with people. You can build, you know, different levels. Sometimes it's professional, sometimes it's this or that, but it's just something that had my my wheels turning a bit on that. Yeah, I have actually been kind of reevaluating friendship in the sense that like, who am I actually friends with? And something that kind of happened lately is I started to realize that I had no connection with any white people other than my parents. Like I would go to work and that's where I would see white people. And then when I go home, that like I, I wouldn't see white people. Like I just would not. See, I just would not interact with white people. And that started to get a little lonely because then I started asking a lot of questions about myself, or I'd ask questions to my friends or my acquaintances or my girlfriend and be like, "Hey, is this is this a problem or is this this?" And it was just kind of too much. And it was like, "No, you gotta figure this stuff out." And now I've been actually being very deliberate about, I guess, in a way, making white friends. And doing white things like I go beer trivia with this one white friend of mine now um, because that is a very white sport right there. Beer trivia. Uh, <laughs> best of them. Yeah? Uh, so it really expresses the know it all uh, trait that's really inherent in white people. Yeah. So I've been actually trying to create connections with white people because I realize that I'm actually feel really uncomfortable around white, just white people. There's something where I just I just freeze lock up and I just freeze where I just feel uncomfortable because I almost feel like this space does not belong to me in a weird way because it's like different. It's just different from what I've experienced. And then there's just lingo and there's just something that feels toxic to me. But I also kind of realized like there was a moment where I was in a space that was just white people. And I was like hearing a lot of microaggressions just kind of pass left and right. And I realized, wait a minute, this is actually where I need to be. Hmm. Like I actually need to be here so that I can just be like, hey, I uh, let's talk about that. Uh, no, I disagree. I think you're completely off base here. 
And that made me realize that I would do a lot better work for people of color, just on a collective level, if I were to be in more white spaces. Hmm. And I think the really important thing to remember about this, you know, I don't know what to call it. Not, I don't like calling it work. I don't like calling it vocation. I don't like calling it I just, I don't like calling it a lifestyle, but just a moral imperative or what we might, is that this is very generational work. We are not going to see the issue of racism solved in our lifetime. That's not going to happen. Just like we're not going to see, you know, the moon landing and colonization of, uh, like, you know, colonization of the moon. But that doesn't mean you don't stop trying to do it, right? Because it's worth. It's a worthwhile goal. It's going to surpass your own lifetime. But it's not about having friends that are people of color. It's about having the tools to have those relationships with other people so that you can pass it on to other people, whether you become a parent and then you can pass it on to your kids or whether you're just someone in the community and someone has questions, you can pass it on to someone. Developing those tools is an imperative that we should do so that we can resolve and reformed, I would say, white culture in some respect. Yeah, it's such a great point. And, and back to what you said about we shouldn't be attached to those certain outcomes or of being a good white person or taking inventory of how many non-white friends we have, because there could be some people listening and there are people in the world who they might be like, that's just not possible where I live and the means that I have right now and the resources I have. So so they might be thinking, well, if I can't make friends who don't look like me, does that mean I just give up on anti-racism work? And of course, the answer is no, because the outcome isn't that. The outcome is dismantling racism and dismantling white supremacy. And anyone can do that from anywhere in any community or situation, right? And I think if we start with that end goal in mind, it will change our decisions and our behaviors and where we go. One thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast and, and something that has been really impactful to me is to what you were just talking about with developing relationships with other white folks is, you know, I went through a, a period of time where I really actually looked at my cultural roots and, and even just kind of had a this thought of like, oh, I actually have culture, right? I, I, I have ancestors who come from other countries and those countries have cultural norms and values. And I really did some research on that and thinking on that. And in a very strange way, the more I learned about that cultural ethnic background, the more positive identity I feel like I developed. And I think what was important, too, in that discovery was believing and understanding that there is no good or bad culture. So I think it'd be very, very easy as white folks to say, my cultural roots are bad. However, all cultures do bad things, right? And I think we also can romanticize other cultures and say, oh, look at those other cultures. They have all these great things. And look at the clothes and food and all this rich culture. And my culture is so bland and boring. But I actually found that when I thought about the richness of my culture and the good things of my culture, it really helped me see other cultures differently. Of this, there is no good or bad, right? There isn't this binary here. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about your cultural ethnic study, if you will. You talked about how you went to Norway for a time, and you said it was a really transformative experience. In fact, you said it actually helped you develop a more positive racial identity as a white person in the United States. So can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it changed your view on race in the U.S. and about you as a person? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in high school, 
I took an exchange year to Norway. There's a lot of, you know, backstory to how it got to be. But at that point in time, my sense of self was that I just hated white supremacy. I just, I did not feel at peace with whiteness. I just, I had a lot of resentment. And I also think that kind of rubbed into my relationship with my own family sometimes, right? Because I was sort of feeling resentful, like, why didn't I get the tools? Why wasn't I told about this? Or like, why why is certain views being expressed um, that's subtle or what? But when I went to Norway, it changed a lot of things because I think I be first there was a mantra that I was told by someone that was really helpful is that, okay, you're going to a new place, totally new space totally different. Remember, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. And that mantra became very helpful in just being non-judgmental about everything I saw, which was so incredibly different from the U.S. I mean, it was a huge culture shock for me. There is very little inequality. There are still issues that are uh, existing for sure. It's not a perfect place by any means, but something about living in in Europe. And then, you know, I also then lived in Ireland for a little bit, Northern Ireland, and did some work there, anti-sectarian work. And my lessons that I drew from that was just Europeans just have a greater sense of being a global citizen. And that matters a lot. And it because also Europeans know how to talk to other people that are not of their native country. It's like, oh, you're from Bulgaria? I happen to know a few things about Bulgaria. I'm curious about that. And it's like conversations are just so much easier because people have knowledge about each other. They're curious. They draw on their similarities. And it just there's a lot more sense of responsibility as we are part of a global community. And we know who we are in this global community, and we'll try to do our part. And that was really transformative. I think something also is being able to kind of get into understand that, oh, these are my people. Like, this is what my, this is where my mother lived, you know. This is where my people came from in Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? It made me, instead of feeling like isolated, alone, hurt as a white kid, you know, like white teenager who was just angry and full of angst, I suddenly felt like I was connected to something greater, like I was part of something larger than myself. And that is just, you know, family old times. And it just was really comforting in that respect. I think it also just helped me unlearn the hyper individualism that is in America, right? Where, you know, there's a famous, there's a saying that I really love about politics, which is that everybody wants to claim they built their own log cabin. And that's just so true about everything in America, in my opinion, is that everybody wants to claim in some way they have built their own log cabin about everything. They want to espouse how and exaggerate how impressive they are. And it actually just gets in the way of being village-minded, where it's like, I see you, you see me, and we're part of a commune, and we're going to talk, and we're going to help each other or get to know each other on a very real level. As I was developing some kind of, you know, connection to my Irish roots in particular, I developed a sense of solidarity learning the history and not like a sense of superiority. I mean, that's also with acknowledging that take off the rosy tinted glasses, like Irish and black relations were terrible in the U.S. because there was just a lot of competition. There was a lot of oppression and white and Irish people worked very hard to 
push down black people at their expense so that they could become ultimately white. But that's also where I kind of realized the grand lie of white America, the grand bamboozle, if you will, that we've (laughs) learned about America, which is that there's American exceptionalism that teaches you if you just become American, if you just give up everything you are, Croatian, uh, Italian, Spaniard, if you just become, if you just give up all that crap and you take our American greenbacks, you'll be all uh, a-okay. Just become, just become this one thing, which is American, which is really code, become white, then you'll be better off. And our ancestors made a calculus in an unfair world where I want to get ahead. I got starving kids. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, push down on other people, talk badly about them and become white, whatever it takes. I'll change my last name even if I have to. And so I think understanding, unpacking that great grand lie is what really helped me understand I am European. I'm not just white. I'm actually European American. There's just something that helped me feel okay with myself from that. There's a really good chapter by Tim Wise on a book called White Like Me. It's a really great chapter where he talks about asking his parents, who who were my grandparents, who were my great-grandparents? And his father tries to tell him, like, yeah, your your great-grandfather was this guy? And he just doesn't know. He doesn't know the answer as to who his great-grandfather is. And he unpacks it to say, the reason my father couldn't tell me who my great-grandfather was is because we collectively as white people just, or as European people in America, we just went through mass amnesia where we just all decided we're just going to forget everything in the old country. We're going to become white. We're going to just do the white thing so that we can gain wealth and power at the expense of indigenous and black and people of color. Well, Hugh, congratulations. First of all, that you said the magic word, bamboozle. So I, I, there, your ceiling should be opening up and streamers and balloons coming down, but it's, I guess it got stuck. Sorry about the... <laughs> you must have listened to our podcast because yeah, yeah. I think you... I have a sense that you purposely uh, uh, snuck that in there, so I appreciate I that. Gotten a pointer here, here, or there. Yeah. <laughs> here, I, here, I didn't think this conversation could get any better, and you just dropped that. Well, Hugh, I mean, it's just been so wonderful to hear your story. We really appreciate you sharing that with us and how you you were able to create through, you know, your lived experiences, both here and growing up in multicultural, multiracial communities and abroad and looking at your culture and having just different viewpoints truly have those tools, as you said, which I, I just love the way you said that, to have the tools to have cross identity conversations and relationships. And you've given us so much to think about. Any last word for our listeners who are trying to do this identity work and are trying to kind of chug along with it besides the last word being bamboozled? Anything else to, to leave them with? I think just to say, we got to do this. As a white person, you may feel like, oh, this doesn't really affect me. I could just like, you know, check out and I'll be fine. But I kind of, I can promise you it's going to come to bite you in some way at some point in your life. 
uh, whether it's because you feel uncomfortable in a moment in public because you haven't figured out why you're acting racist by just subconsciously fearing for your life out on the street, which is going to harm someone one day, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or cause a misunderstanding and it's going to cause a, a great embarrassment to you, or it's going to hurt that guy, you know, the, the guy on the other side. It's really important to do this work because, you know, maybe you have kids one day and your kid is, you know, in spaces with people of color and comes to you and says, Dad, I don't understand this one thing. You want the best for your kid. You want to be able to tell them like and give them the tools to unpack that that scenario that they're under. But if you don't do that work, if you don't, you know, stay tuned in, if you don't keep showing up. It's going to be really hard to give that, have that conversation with nuance or to provide some kind of framework that they can work with because nobody should be trying to figure out this on their own. I I wish this podcast existed when I was a kid because it was extremely lonely and it was really fraught with a lot of, you know, anxiety. But I think now that things are better where we can actually, we have the technology, we are organizing around this. And we can actually have conversations about these really uncomfortable topics and get, you know, build that resiliency. And, you know, academics is good. It's learned, it's good to learn about all these buzzwords and, you know, things about how oppression works. But sometimes you just got to go out there and just try. I mean, it's there's no, no, no better way how to learn things. It's like my wrestling coach used to say, the best way to learn a move is to not practice it in the gym. The best way to learn a move is to just do it during a match. Hmm. But sometimes you just gotta take practice and apply it to practice to mm. you know, action. That is a very energizing and encouraging way to end this. Hugh Kennedy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation with us. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. There it was. We told you. You're going to learn a lot about mung peppers and many other really excellent insights and experiences from Hugh. A huge thanks again to Hugh Kennedy. He even said bamboozled Paul. I mean, what more could we ask? We didn't tell, we didn't tell him to say that, just no. for the record. No. I, I don't know what more we could ask from a guest. <laughs> no, he was, he was just so great. Um, so thanks again to Hugh. I'm sure that you all had a lot of takeaways from him sharing, like Paul said in the intro, not just lived experiences, but also some really good tangible things. And what Paul and I are going to do as we did with last episode, that new thing, we were going to label it mini blog is I believe the branding we were going to do. And yet it wasn't so mini Paul. (laughs) We're not good at that whole, we're not so good at that mini part, are we? But we're over promise under deliver yeah people are like great i'm gonna go in for a quick read and then it's like oh i need a cup of coffee and sit here for 20 minutes no so we're gonna write up our takeaways again and post it on the blog section of our website so check that out at www.themodernwhiteman.com you can see all of our interviews the video of them on our youtube channel yes it's called the modern white man on youtube Please sign up for our newsletter that is also on our website. And if you're liking these episodes, could you give us five stars? We haven't asked for five stars in a while, Paul. Please. Or just 
Any, I mean, any stars. No, we want five only. Oh, oh five. We want okay. five only. I was listening to a podcast okay. lately, and they're like, get these four <laughs> stars out of here. We want only four st- <laughs> five stars. I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, I'm stealing that line, baby. Gonna, you know there's going to be some people out there give us one star. So at the end of the day, Fine. I think at least at least a, a rating at some point or in some form, it, it helps us get, get the word out there. It helps us get, get more traction. But, yeah, five stars would be. Yeah, especially those five stars. Yeah. Yeah. Did we mention five stars? Thanks, everybody. Until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work.